What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If we were at a party and everybody had had two beers, and then I asked, what do you do for a living? Like, what do you actually say in social settings? It depends how quickly I need to leave. <laughs> if I need to leave soon, I'll usually say, I teach sociology, which isn't really true, but I know it's really boring sounding. So then everyone's like, okay, bye. However, if it looks like I've got some time, and I know the person will want to talk to me. I'll say, I'm director of the Center for Death and Society, and I do research on death, dying, and the dead body, and interdisciplinary studies around everything to do with death and dying. That is Dr. John Troyer, who lectures at the University of Bath in England and is the MVP of every party. I am Dessa, host of Deeply Human, and Deeply Human is the podcast you are listening to. And a podcast is like a balsamic reduction of pure knowledge drizzled in through your ears to season your brain. Today's episode is about dying and why you shouldn't put off talking about it until you're dead. So part your hair down the middle in your best Wednesday Adams and stretch out for a rigorous conversation about death activism, the guillotine, and the ferocity of human love. Love of mine, someday you will die, but I'll be close behind. I'll follow you into the dark, the blinding light. Okay, so back to the party scene. How does John introduce himself when he's off the clock? In that scenario where you give him the long, interesting answer, do you know what they're going to say next? Yeah, usually, this is actually almost always... The way it happens, they'll say, oh, God, wow. I don't, mm. Okay, I, I have to ask you this question. And then it just goes into about 30 minutes to an hour to a couple hours of just relentless questioning about everything anyone's ever wanted to know about death and dying, which is normal. I expect that because people are genuinely interested in it. Like, it is a constant. And if you can say anything about humans as a species, and this might strike some listeners as a bit grim, but I think it's completely accurate, is that you know, if there's anything we're good at, it's dying. That eventually it's going to happen. I met John a bunch of years ago, before he'd moved to England and before he was a death rock star. We met in our 20s, both of us competing in the slam poetry scene in Minneapolis. He seemed funny and weird and smart, an assessment that still holds. 
and my delivery of a rhyming poem about metaphysics at one of our competitions must have passed muster because he invited me to sit in on the defense of his PhD dissertation. And that seemed like a terribly adult way to spend an afternoon. So I went. I was mesmerized listening to John talk about the science and culture of death. How the first embalmed bodies were carted around the U.S. like sideshow attractions. How people used to pose for pictures with their recently deceased relatives. And unless you look really closely at the photos, it's tough to tell who is warm and who is dead. Death, as it turns out, runs in John's family. So my dad was a funeral director for many years, owned a couple of funeral homes, worked at other couple of funeral homes. And, you know, I just grew up watching him organize, run and do funerals. But he also taught cosmetology. So he taught the makeup classes. Apparently, he was very good at matching skin tone. His students would tell me, he's like, yeah, dad, really good at the makeup. And I was like, well, it's good to know. For the record, John didn't want to follow in his dad's footsteps. And yes, dude, he has seen the HBO series Six Feet Under. John's interest was more intellectual. He wanted to investigate how technology affects the way that society treats death and dead bodies. For example, these days we're living further apart from our families, which means that we're dying further apart too. And so embalming services are in steady demand because by injecting a body with preservatives, we get a shelf-stable corpse that allows the family time to gather. Because of this embalming technology, the dead body in your imagination might look sort of like a living person who's asleep. But before the Civil War, dead bodies looked really different than living bodies. They start to decompose. They turn black. Okay, quick extra credit fact. Abraham Lincoln played a really big part in popularizing embalming. After his assassination, his body was taken across the country in a special train car for public viewing, and it was embalmed more than once along the way. New technologies can shape the way that we handle our dead, and new political ideas can change the way that we die. For example, California in 1976 becomes the first state to pass what's called the Natural Death Act. And the Natural Death Act states you have a right to refuse treatment and to die naturally. And we think about that today as almost being a given, but it wasn't. It wasn't. There had to be a law that was created and then passed along where you could tell people both medically and ethically, but also philosophically and politically. And again, I think the political side of this is very important. You have a right to die by refusing treatment if you no longer want it. And why is that political? Well, because it was a statement of autonomy. I will die as I choose. And there's a longer history here of a break than from religious tradition, because, of course, for many centuries, you did not die the way you chose. You died the way God chose. Well, if you say, I die the way I choose, that means then that the state or whatever governing power is in place, no one will tell me how I can die. In the 1970s, universities in the U.S. and the U.K. taught sociology of death courses, And activists fought to change our approach to death with conversations about assisted suicide, end-of-life rights, and dignity in death. And the living will was invented, a document that expresses a person's wishes for health care when they're no longer able to make those decisions. I thought that all these shifts in thinking and practice were designed to provide people with a good death. John, not so much. 
There's been lots of conversations around this idea of a good death. I've never been big on that terminology because then it suggests there's a bad death. And I'm not saying you can't create qualitative judgments around these things because I think we can talk about preferred ways of dying. But I think ultimately what we're talking about in terms of death is, you know, death as a phenomenon, irregardless of goodness or badness, is going to happen. But I'm, oh, see, I'm confused. I mean, in some ways it feels like, oh, I don't know. It, like, why shy from normative terms? Because if I were to compare two ways of death, like shark attack versus in the arms of my beloved, like one of those deaths is clearly sort of lousy and one is like way better. Right. No, I understand that. The concern you can come up with, and this is something that it's been discussed, is that because once you start to create expectations around dying, people can start to feel like they're doing it wrong. And that's always been one of my big concerns with a lot of the discussions around death and dying in, in a, all different kinds of facets of society, which have been going on now for like, you know, the last 20 years. It's never not been a hot topic, as it were. But I think that what happens is families, and usually families more than the dying, but sometimes the dying, they can feel like they're doing it wrong. That fear that I'm somehow messing up at this basic biological function is one you might have also heard in relation to childbirth. Moms can face a lot of pressures about how and where to deliver, at home, at the hospital, in a birthing center, with or without pain meds, in a tub of water, preferably on a weekday. A lot of parents hire birth doulas to help with their pregnancy and delivery. Doulas aren't part of the medical team, but they're a source of support and encouragement, and they've got a lot of experience helping tykes into the world. There are also death doulas who help people to leave the world. I die with people. And I say die with them because I feel like with every person I died with, I'm a little closer to understanding what death is. And that's just the last breath. There's nothing more magical about it. Denise Love has worked as a death doula for 28 years. She's also helped set up hospices and worked as a registered nurse. And part of her motivation in life is to help people talk about death, to be less afraid of the whole conversation. I think the fear is just too great. If you talk about it, you might drop dead. It's just terrifying to use the word. Even most people don't ever use the word in their lives. We pass away or somebody's ill. We avoid the language of death. Denise has spent a lot of time working in the developing world with people in Nepal, Myanmar, Cambodia, and Thailand, which is where she was when I spoke with her. The deaths Denise has witnessed in the developing world look really different than those she's been a part of in Western societies. Whatever this thing we're telling everybody is to fight, that's a load of nonsense. There's nothing to fight. Surrendering to death means a comfortable death. That's my theory behind it. Do dying people often have to fight with their loved ones to die? Absolutely. So come on, Dad, you can do it. Fight it. You're going to be... 76 tomorrow, or, you know, a young pregnant woman kept saying to her husband, can you just hold on until I have the baby? And he looked at me and he said, I can't. How do I tell her I'm done? I don't want to do this anymore. So I said, let's bring her in and tell her. And he just had terror in his eyes. So we had the most amazing hour of, if you love me, you'll live, and if you love me, you'll let me die. And we had that beautiful, difficult conversation, which was sort of a bit heated at times but really negotiations. So a big 
the death doula's job is getting the family talking in an honest and open way. But yeah, there's a lot of disagreement and one daughter wants this and one daughter saying, come on, we can help him live, let's give him vitamins and let's juice another 23,000 carrots and give him kale and let's make him drink his own urine. I mean, I've been through everything. And then I just say, let's all go inside and talk to them. And I say, do you want to live or do you want to die? I mean, nobody asks that question because it seems selfish. And they've already told me they want to die usually. So, you know, I feel really comfortable bringing the family in and just saying, can we let him go? If you love him, just let him go. I've always thought a lot about death, even as a little kid. And you hope that when the time comes, you can spare the people you love pain or discomfort. But it hadn't occurred to me that I might help my loved ones by releasing them from any obligation they might feel to stick around. When someone's really sick and maybe dying, I already know to ask, does it hurt? Okay, then let's talk to the morphine nurse. Now I also know to ask, hey, do you just want to leave now? Because I don't want to keep you. This is your show. So don't stay late for me. That's a kindness that question. And I'm grateful to Denise for handing it to me. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Our next guest, Dr. Sam Parnia, deals in totally different sorts of questions. Do you think that there might be a future where a good number of us die many times? I think what you're going to see is when resuscitation advances, then there'll be many people who can say, oh, I had like, you know, four cardiac arrests in my life and nothing mattered. I was dead for 12 hours, 16 hours, and they brought me back. If our body is still in good shape, we will be able to be revived and allowed to live another 10 or 20 or 30 years. Dr. Sam Parnia is the director of the Critical Care and Resuscitation Research Program at New York University. He specializes in bringing people back to life. And he thinks that as technology advances, we'll have a lot more Lazaruses and Lazarettes amongst us. I asked him to start with a working definition of death. 
In practice, how would a physician know if a patient is dead? Like, dead, dead, dead. It's interesting because I think most people listening will think that they understand death and it's pretty simple. You're either dead or you're alive. And the reality is that was true because for thousands of years, whenever a person's heart stopped, they would essentially reach a point where they were irreversibly dead. So to answer your question, the way that physicians declare somebody dead is that their heart stops. When the person's heart stops, they also stop breathing. And because there's no blood flowing around the body, there's no energy, and the brain also shuts down almost immediately. So the three criteria that they look for are no heartbeat, no breathing, and absence of brain response. But as our tools and understanding have evolved, the heart, breath, and brain don't always stop on the same dime. Ventilators can breathe for a body that's unable to respire on its own, for example. So what if machines perform the duties of the heart and lungs, but the brain has stopped working? Is that person dead? To answer that question and others like it, a commission appointed by U.S. President Jimmy Carter published a report called Defining Death in 1981. It said a person was dead if one of two criteria were met. Either irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions, so like your heart stopped and you're not breathing, or irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem. But not all the states adopted this definition in exactly the same way. New Jersey, for example, provides an exemption for patients whose religious views might be compromised by declaring brain death. So their families can ask that doctors use only the cardiopulmonary definition, the heart and lung one, which means that a person who'd be considered dead in one state might not be dead in another. As definitions get more clinical, even our fundamental intuitions about death can start to give way. We socially have defined death as this irreversible moment where a person becomes lifeless, motionless, and they can never come back to life again. But it's important to understand that's just simple social and philosophical notions. And that as medicine and science have evolved, we've understood that actually death is far more complicated than we ever thought it could be. To further complicate the question, not all of the cells in your body die at the same time. So how long does it take for the human brain to go offline? If you were to be decapitated, would consciousness stop instantaneously? That question was not at all hypothetical when the guillotine was in vogue. The device was invented specifically to serve as a humane method of execution, which would hardly be true if a head severed from its body had the chance to appreciate its circumstance. In 1905, a physician named Gabriel Borrier conducted an experiment. He witnessed an execution of a criminal, approached the decapitated head, and shouted the man's name. The doctor said that the man's eyelids lifted normally as they would in life, the pupils focused, and the eyes fixed on his own. Okay, trying to play the cool former goth kid over here holding steady in her combat boots, but I cannot fathom a more chilling experience on all of the earth than commuting with a severed head. It may be difficult to demarcate the exact threshold where life ends, but of course, all of us will die eventually, and we'll lose people we love too. The human animal is fully aware of our own impermanence and the fragility of our family and friends, 
but we go ahead and love them anyway. John Troyer, the expert and poet who we met at the beginning of the show, devoted his career to contemplating death and dying. But all those years of professional expertise didn't prepare him for a big personal loss. So on July 29th, 2018, my younger sister Julie died from brain cancer at age 43. A couple young kids, husband lived in Italy, so she died in Italy was diagnosed in late July 2017 and then, you know, had a year of life. And it was shocking. And I discovered a couple of blind spots that I had in the context of my sister's dying process, which is one, it was clear at the end of April that she was dying. Like there was no coming back from where she was. The cancer had progressed. And I knew it. My dad knew it. My mom knew it. And no one was saying anything about dying. Fast forward, I will then actually be the person who tells my sister she's dying, use the word dying, in July 13th of 2018, so 16 days before she dies. And she was already in the summer receiving outpatient hospice care from a wonderful hospice in Italy. So as to why no one was actually talking about dying, I don't know. Partly that's a cultural practice in Italy, but too because I think, you know, some of her friends just were, they were unsure what to say. And my brother-in-law was being told by the counselors, like, well, you know, let her ask. And I mean, there are a whole lot of things going on involved and it, it all in a way makes sense. But I think it was also very important to tell Julie, she was dying because one, I did. And she said, well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I knew, but thank you for saying this. And it changed then her end of life trajectory and care because suddenly then everyone was saying dying and it no longer meant that we had to pretend, right? How does it change it? Using that word, you know, how does that change care? Well, I think, and what I told my sister was, Julie, I can tell you you're dying. You're hearing me say dying. You have to be the one who says, I'm dying, because everyone needs to hear you saying it, because you saying it will make people take it more seriously. And she said, okay, I understand. Um, I've done so well, I get choked up, but it's okay. Um, I'm happy to talk about it, because it's, it, it's, it's interesting to me that I, I've gone for so long without getting choked up about telling that story, but the one thing she said to me that I... It has always stuck with me. You know, she says, I would do the same for you. And um, and she would. And she would have done the same exact thing for me. And I, I, the thing that I think, this is why I always think about it, like, for everything I know about death and dying, which is perhaps a lot more could be learned than I'm the first to admit that, for everything I know, when presented in this moment, I will always wonder why. I didn't say what was clearly obvious. And and again, it's not a moment of regret. I just won't. I don't understand why. Fellow mortals, now would be a great time to pause this podcast and send a text to someone you love. I'm going to. While Julie was dying, John was working on a book called Technologies of the Human Corpse. He included some poems about his sister, and at the end of the book, he lists a bunch of questions that you can answer now to make choices about the way you'd like to die and be memorialized. I'm going to paraphrase a few of them here. 
Think about jotting down your responses and sharing them with someone you love. Or maybe listen together and swap answer sheets. Number one. The price range I would like spent on my funeral is... Number two. Does someone have all your passwords and logins? If so, who? Number three. Are there certain songs you'd like included on your funeral playlist? Number four. Do you want life support? Under what conditions would you like to be removed from it? Number five. Do you have an outfit you'd like to be dressed in? I really like that last one. There's this almost universal protocol that dead people should be dressed in their Sunday best. But I suck in high heels. I want to go out in my combat boots. I've walked the world in those. I've done my best work in them. I've fallen in and out of love in them. So lace them tight and double knot them, please. I'm clumsy. Special thanks to Dr. Troyer for his time and his candor. John, you are a class act. And thank you, esteemed listener, for hanging out. Our time is finite and ever fleeting, and so I'm very grateful you've spent some of yours with me. Deeply Human is a BBC World Service and American Public Media co-production with iHeartMedia. Many humans of great depth have been involved in the making of Deeply Human, so credit where it's due to Senior Commissioning Editor Steve Titherington, Editors Rich Knight and Hugh Levinson, Series Producers Ben Crichton, Sandra Canthal, and Simon Maben, Producers Monica Whitlock, Gemma Newby, and Hannah Moore, Researcher Bethan Head, Production Coordinators Janet Staples and Blaze Hesselgren, and for making it all sound beautiful, our Studio Managers James Beard and Tom Brignall. And the composer of the deeply human theme that is in your ears right now is Nick Thorburn. I think I said this already, but I'm Dessa. Thanks. (laughs) See you next time.